Amen. Take your Bibles and uh, meet me in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're continuing in our series, uh, What the Spirit Says to the Churches. These seven messages that Jesus gives to the churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. Real churches, just like ours, with highs and lows, just like ours, with strengths and weaknesses, just like ours, with suffering and victories, just like ours. And he gives a particular word to each particular church, uh, but a word that uh, really all of Jesus' churches need to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says seven times here at the beginning of Revelation. And so as we look at this third message uh, to, the, to the churches, the message addressed to the church in the city of Pergamum, uh, let's, uh, let's have ears and hearts ready to receive what the Spirit says to our church today. Look with me at Revelation chapter 2 and starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Compromise in marriage is a good thing. I'm sure all the married people in the room would agree with that statement. Um, Before Alyssa and I got married, I thought we had so much in common. But when we got married, uh, we discovered that we don't see eye to eye on something that's very important, and that's where to keep the thermostat at night. Before I got married, I liked to keep the thermostat at a cool 68 degrees, Whoa, man, all right, (laughs) ceiling fan on, Alyssa, before we got married, liked to keep it like 74 degrees, right, right, thank you, (laughs) ceiling fan off, and so when we got married, we compromised at a 71 degrees, 
But credit where credit is due, she lets me keep the ceiling fan on. So she's, she's a better compromiser than I am. Compromise in marriage is a good thing. Uh, because when you compromise, you're saying, I love you more than me, so I'm willing to give up my preference and give in to what you want. But there's a sinful kind of compromise that we have to watch out for, both as individual Christians and as a church. Uh, whereas the good kind of compromise, like compromise in marriage, says, I love you more than myself, and I'm willing to give up my preference and give in to what you want. Uh, the sinful kind of compromise that we have to watch out for looks like this. I love my idol more than Christ, so I'm willing to give up faithfulness to Christ and give in to what I want. For example, as an individual, I love money more than Christ, so I'm willing to give up on generosity and give in to hoarding a little extra for myself. Or I, I love my girlfriend more than Christ, so we're willing to give up what the Bible teaches on God's design for marriage and give in to my physical desires. Or think about how a church might compromise. Just a couple of examples. Uh, we love church growth more than Christ, so we're willing to give up what the Bible teaches and give in to what gets more people in the room. Or, the flip side, we love what is easy more than Christ, so we're willing to give up winning people to Christ in order to give in to just relaxing in our holy huddle. I love my idol more than Christ, so I'm willing to give up faithfulness to Christ in order to give in to what I want. What we see in the church in Pergamum is this was a church that was compromising. The thing about compromise, though, is it's, it's not full-blown idolatry. It's not full-blown sin in, in its 100% form. I mean, think about the example I gave about temperature. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm turning on the heater up to 80. You know, it, it's still pretty relatively cool. I'm giving up a few degrees, but it's still, you know, pretty relatively cool. Well, likewise, Pergamum wasn't running full speed into sin. In fact, they have much to be praised for as a church. But the lie of compromise is you're so faithful in some areas, it's okay to give in a little bit over here. You're, you're pretty good. I mean, look at all these things that you have that are praiseworthy. So it's okay if you kind of fudge a little bit over here. If you give in a little bit over here. Well, I believe that the message to Pergamum and the message to us today is just this simple. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. And what we'll see in the end it, it, is that it is worth it to not compromise. But if we're not going to compromise, we need to see four things in this text. And first is that Jesus is the righteous judge. Jesus is the righteous judge. So as he does in all these letters, Jesus begins with a description of himself. Look at verse 12 again with me. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So just like the first two letters in Revelation, 
This image comes from the vision that Jesus gave John in the opening chapter of Revelation when he came to him to instruct him, to command him to write Revelation. Jesus reveals himself in this glorious vision, and as part of this just stunning, glorious picture of Jesus, he has, Jesus sees, or John sees Jesus with a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The, the one who has the sword has the authority to judge. Throughout Scripture, the Bible describes God judging uh, executing justice with a sword. The one who holds the sword decides whether to use the sword for you or against you. Whether to reward justice or to punish injustice. Uh, the Bible describes the leaders that God appoints wielding a sword of judgment. Uh, in Romans 13, Paul talks about the human government that God instituted. Uh, that in God's design, human government is to approve what is good and carry out God's wrath with the sword against wrongdoers. So throughout Scripture, the sword is a picture of judgment, of authority. And in the vision that Jesus gives John, the sword of judgment is coming out of his mouth. The sword of judgment is his word. Uh, we see this in Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So on the one hand, the word of Jesus is the standard by which we are judged. It's the standard of what is righteous and unjust. But Jesus' word is also a powerful sword that executes justice. It is living and active. It discerns what is going on in the heart of man. It's the sword of Jesus' mouth that he will use to destroy his enemies when he returns. In Revelation 19, verse 15, uh, John sees Jesus return on a white horse coming to judge in righteousness and make war. And he says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And as the scene unfolds, Jesus slays his enemies with the sword that comes from his mouth. This tells us something of the power of Jesus and the power of his word. When he comes, he's not coming with a, a literal sword going one by one after each one of his enemies. No, he comes and he just says the word and his enemies are slain. That is his powerful word. His powerful word of judgment. So going back to the letter to Pergamum. Get this picture. Here at the very beginning of this letter. It's as if right from the beginning, Jesus is drawing his weapon before the church at Pergamum to start this way. The judge of all nations, the righteous one with the word powerful enough to create and powerful enough to destroy, speaks to Pergamum with his sword drawn. 
when this is the one coming to you, you had better believe that you're going to sit up and you're going to pay attention to what he says. You may even get down on your knees and raise your hands and surrender before the one who has his weapon drawn before you. Do we, is this our posture toward Jesus? Is this how we see Jesus as the one who is the righteous judge? As the one who has the power of life and death? As the one with the sword of judgment? The powerful, discerning word. You know, Jesus reveals himself in a lot of ways. He reveals himself as gracious and merciful, as a friend, as a brother. So there are more than one posture, there is more than one posture to have toward Jesus. But I'm afraid that if we become too familiar with Jesus, that we lose this posture. That we lose the reverence that we ought to have for Jesus. The the fear, the, the trembling at his word that the Bible talks about. You know, in, in our culture, we, we become very familiar with Jesus. You know, Jesus is my homeboy. Sweet baby Jesus, right? It's very familiar to talk about Jesus, right? But do we have a fear, a, a, a right fear, not, a, not terrified, but I mean a reverence? Do, do we recognize him as the righteous judge, as the one who is worthy to, of us bowing down of trembling at his word. Is this our posture of Jesus? Because if we are going to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, we must have that posture. We must recognize Jesus as the righteous one who judges. We must have a right fear of Jesus. Jesus comes to Pergamum with his sword drawn, And he offers two words about compromise. Uh, The next point that we need to see here is that Jesus sees when you don't compromise. Jesus sees when you don't compromise. Look at verse 13 with me again. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So first, Jesus tells these Christians that he knows the environment that they're living in. He identifies it, he describes the city of Pergamum as where Satan's throne is. And this may be referring to a number of things. Uh, Pergamum had a temple dedicated, it was actually the first temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor Caesar. Uh, Also prevalent in Pergamum was the worship of the Greek god of healing, Asclepius, whose symbol was a serpent on a staff, like the symbol throughout scripture is a serpent for Satan. Uh, We see that symbol of a serpent on a staff used in medicine still today, the god of healing, Asclepius. Uh, plus, there, in Pergamum, there was a large altar to the Greek god Zeus. And it still stands today, and it resembles a throne. So when 
Jesus says that Pergamum is where Satan's throne is, he might be referring to any number of these aspects, but the point is that these Christians were living in a culture that was dominated by false worship. It was dominated by sinful obsession with human government. It was dominated by devotion to cultural religion. And it was a place that was unfriendly to Christians. So unfriendly, that's obviously an understatement, so unfriendly that a faithful Christian who was a member of the church in Pergamum was even killed as a result of his faithfulness to Christ and his resistance to the culture around him. This man named Antipas. And notice that Jesus refers to Antipas as my faithful witness. Back in Revelation chapter 1, when John first addresses these churches, he mentions, he refers to Jesus himself as the faithful witness. And I draw that out to say, look at the honor that Jesus shows Antipas by sharing his title with him, by referring to him as a faithful witness. My faithful witness, Jesus says. He shares his name with Antipas. And that that is a gracious Lord who honors those who are faithful to him. Jesus praises these Christians in Pergamum for holding fast his name. That is, for, for representing Christ faithfully, even though that required that they swim against the strong current of their society. He praises them for not denying his faith, for not letting the opposition and life-threatening conditions they face cause their trust in Jesus to be shaken. Jesus wants these Christians to know that he sees the opposition that they're facing. He sees how unpopular it is to follow him. He sees how much they have to literally stick out their necks in order to follow him and to be faithful to him. And he wants them to know that he's pleased with their devotion to him. Do you know that Jesus sees your faithfulness to him? Even when no one else sees it, Jesus sees your faithfulness to him. When people around you are wanting to go the way of the world, but you go against the current in order to stay faithful to Christ, when it feels like you're all alone and no one sees, Jesus sees. He sees your faithfulness. He sees your heart to please him, despite what people think. He sees the embarrassment you feel. He sees the social credit that you're giving up. Even though you might be the only one, even, no one, even though no one may ever affirm you, even though no one may ever give you a pat on the back for your faithfulness in spite of opposition, Jesus sees, and he's pleased. He's a gracious Lord who honors those who remain faithful to him. Jesus sees when you don't compromise. Jesus also sees when you do compromise. Look at verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
So the church in Pergamum was faithful to not compromise when faced with pressure from the outside. But they allowed false teaching to creep in on the inside. You may remember that this group, the Nicolaitans, came up before in one of the other letters. And we don't know a ton about them, but in this letter it seems like their teaching is very similar to the teaching of Balaam. And we know a little bit more about Balaam in Scripture. Um, Balaam is featured in the Old Testament book of Numbers, which records Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they enter the promised land. And along the way, as God guided them through the wilderness, Israel faced many enemies, and God repeatedly gave them, gave them victory over their enemies. Uh, when they came to a place called Moab, uh, the king of Moab, Balak, was terrified because he had heard about how Israel was this force to be reckoned with, or so he thought. Um, so he hired a Gentile prophet named Balaam to come and curse the nation of Israel. But Balaam, the prophet, warned King Balak, you know, I don't have any power to just say whatever I want. I can only say what God, Yahweh, gives to my mouth to say. Well, as it turns out, um, it wasn't a very good strategy for King Balak to try and hire a prophet of God to curse the people of God. Four times, King Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, and four times he opened his mouth and blessing came out. And as mad as Balak got, as much money as he tried to offer him, as many altars as he tried to set up, he couldn't do anything but bless the people of Israel because he was speaking what God said. And if you stop the story there, it seems like a big victory for Israel. The pagan king tried to defeat God's people from the outside, and he failed. It would seem like a win. But the story doesn't stop there. Immediately, right after this seeming victory, we see the people of Israel giving in to idolatry. Uh, the men of Israel began to commit sexual immorality with the women of Moab. And, and what was uh, most troubling about this is that these Moabite women led these Israelites away, led their hearts away from the one true God into making sacrifices to the pagan god Baal. So what happened? It seems like a victory. And then there was this failure. Well, later in Numbers 31, it's recorded that the Moabite women seduced the Israelites into Baal worship on the advice of Balaam, the prophet. He saw that external pressure had failed to defeat the people of God, so he switched the strategy to internal compromise. And likewise, the people of Pergamum, the external pressure that they faced, they, they withstood that external pressure. But Jesus rebukes them for allowing themselves to compromise internally among them. We don't know exactly how the church at Pergamum compromised, but like Balaam led Israel to give in to the idols of the culture around them, we can be pretty sure that these Christians in Pergamum that Jesus is addressing, uh, that they were doing the same thing with the idols of their day. And we too, in our day, have to guard ourselves against compromising with the idols of culture. Perhaps these people 
who were part of the church in Pergamum were compromising by giving in to emperor worship, like we talked about before that was prevalent in Pergamum. You know, for us, we may not have a temple to the emperor, but we still have to watch out for compromise in terms of having an unhealthy relationship or an unhealthy attitude toward our country, government, politics. Do we let our love for country come before love for Jesus? There's a right order there. Do we love the Constitution more than we love the words of Jesus? We can love both, but one has to come before the other. Do we let our devotion to a political party, or do we let our devotion to a candidate trump our devotion to Jesus? Perhaps these people were giving in to emperor worship, and we need to always examine our hearts as well and ask our Are we loving Jesus more than human government? But perhaps these people who were part of the church in Pergamum were compromising by giving in to some form of pagan worship, like the God of healing that I mentioned before. We might not have a temple to Asclepius, but the, the point of that worship of the God of healing was if I worship you, if I make these sacrifices, if I do these things, you'll give me help. If I do all these rituals, you'll give me healing. It's just a way of earning what you want, getting what you want out of this God. So maybe we don't have a temple to Asclepius, but do we believe that God owes us help because of our faithfulness to him? Do we believe we are entitled to provision, healing, or privilege because we're good worshipers? This sort of thinking comes out in thoughts or words like this. Man, I I can't believe that happened to him. He's such a good Christian. Well, what are you saying? That your faithfulness to God entitles you to whatever you want from God, the things that you would desire? We have to watch out because it's very easy for us to let these ideas of pagan worship come in and, and seep into us And we start to lose faithfulness to Christ in the name of man-made religion. We seek to, or we stop worshiping the true God of Scripture. And we let idolatry creep in. These, sorry. (laughs) So because the church in Pergamum has let people among them compromise in terms of false beliefs, Jesus calls them to repent. So look at verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is is serious. Jesus takes this very, very seriously. This compromise that has infected the church in Pergamum is a matter of war for Jesus. Uh, This idea of making war with the sword of his mouth. I mean, we saw that in Revelation 19. This is the fate of Jesus' enemies. And he's saying there's people in your church who are believing things, and if you don't repent, I'm going to come and make war against them. If they do not handle this as a church, if the church of Pergamum does not handle this corruption, this compromise within them, Jesus is going to come and handle it. And you don't want that. So 
what does it mean for us as a church to repent of tolerating false teachings in our church? Because it seems like in this church, there's the whole church, and then there's some among them who hold to these teachings. So not everyone, this isn't a church that's necessarily teaching this and believing it in its entirety, but there's these pockets of people within their church that hold to these teachings, hold to these compromising teachings. So what do we do as a church when we see pockets of compromise, people accepting false teaching that's leading them away from Jesus? Well, first, it means we need to correct our brothers and sisters who are holding to false teachings. The church is not a live-and-let-live institution. The church is a Jesus-is-Lord institution. And the church is a love-your-neighbor-as-yourself institution. And if you see your brother or sister in error that's leading them away from Jesus, you want to go and rescue them. You want to get them out of this error. You want to get them out of the, the path that they're on toward despair and toward falsehood and toward war from Jesus. If we love our brothers and sisters, we'll correct our brothers and sisters. But the church that tolerates people believing things not only is unloving, but it's a church that needs to repent, Jesus says. It's Jesus, the righteous judge, takes compromise very seriously. And we should too. He sees when we don't compromise he sees when we do compromise. And one last thing that we need to see in this passage. Jesus offers grace to those who repent of compromise and reward to those who do not compromise. I'll say that again. Jesus offers grace to those who repent of compromise and reward to those who do not compromise. So here in this last part of the letter, in this last verse, Jesus promises three rewards to those who conquer, to those who persevere in faithfulness to the end. First, at the beginning of verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Well, manna was the bread that God gave Israel in the wilderness to sustain them. For the 40 years that they were wandering. Uh, in fact, in that story we saw uh, with Balaam earlier, you know, one of the ways that Israel was faithless to God in that story is that they indulged in uh, the food of idol worship instead of depending on the provision he gave them. Idols like Baal or Asclepius or whoever, uh, idols that we worship offer promise satisfaction. Our idols promise that, oh, just come to me, worship me, and I will satisfy your soul. But they always leave us empty. They may invite us to their feasts, but we leave hungrier than when we came. But what Jesus is saying here is that the one who continues in faithfulness to him will be eternally satisfied. Those who conquer receive from Christ eternal sustenance, and a joyful feast. Uh, in Revelation 7, we see that those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb shall hunger no more. And in Revelation 19, we see the future hope of the people of God is that we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just 
as, as God sustained his people with manna in the wilderness, so he will sustain those who trust in Jesus for all of eternity. Jesus promises eternal satisfaction as a reward to all who persevere without compromising. The second promise for the one who conquers is a white stone, which is, of course, what we all want. Um, It's not really totally clear what this white stone is. Uh, Scripture doesn't tell us a lot. Um, But there's a couple of strong possibilities that arise from the culture that this was written in. One possibility is that it has to do with the legal system. So stones were used in court cases to give either uh, innocent or guilty verdicts. So if you got a black stone, that was a, vo- that was a guilty vote. If you got a white stone, that was a vote of innocence, not guilty. Well, here is hope for compromisers like you and me. Here is hope for idolaters like you and me. If we repent of our compromise and place our faith in Jesus, though we deserve a black stone of guilt, Jesus gives us his righteousness. He justifies those who have faith in him so that if we trust in him, we are counted not guilty. Another possible background to this white stone has to do with athletics. A white stone was sometimes given as a reward to the winner of a competition. And the white stone was like a VIP pass to a banquet for victors. So here's another reward for those who don't compromise, for those who conquer. Those who conquer spiritually, those are those who share in Christ's victory. And those who share in Christ's victory receive the prize of the victor. So if we take both of those pictures, both fit really nicely into what we see later in Revelation 19. So imagine both of these pictures together of this white stone. Those who conquer have been given the righteousness of Jesus. Those who conquer have been given the victory of Jesus and have been invited to the victory banquet of Jesus. Uh, Flip over with me to Revelation 19. We're given righteousness by Jesus. We're given victory and the reward that Jesus deserves for his victory. In Revelation 19, look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Those who conquer are those who have been made ready by the bridegroom, who were a bride clothed in his righteousness, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And because Jesus gives us victory in himself, we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We conquer 
if we remain steadfast, faithful to him. The third promise to the one who conquers is that there will be a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, Revelation 19 is helpful here because just a few verses later, John sees a vision of Jesus at his second coming. We looked at part of this earlier, but look at verse 12 of Revelation 19. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Do you remember earlier how Jesus referred to Antipas as his faithful witness? He gave him his name? Well, likewise, Jesus has a name written on himself that no one knows, and he gives everyone who conquers a name written that no one knows. Jesus promises that everyone who perseveres to the end, who stays faithful to him, will be identified with him. A name is an identity, and for Jesus to give his name to someone else, for him to share that with us, is to identify with us. It's similar to what Jesus says uh, in a few letters later to the church in Philadelphia. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. One of the most incredible aspects of the gospel is that Jesus identifies with us. In his first coming, he identified with us by coming down to us, by meeting us where we were. He took on human form like us. He was tempted like us. He bore our sin. He bore our death. But when Jesus comes the second time, he will identify with us by bringing us up to him because he bore our sin and he bore our death at his first coming at his second coming we will bear his name we will bear his righteousness we will receive his reward we will have his treasure he will give us a place in his home and this is why it's worth it not to compromise this is why it's worth persevering to the end conquering because Jesus offers grace to us when we compromise and we repent of those things. But he also offers us reward for staying faithful. He sees, he knows, and he promises that we will enter into his kingdom through faith in him. He gives us the grace that we need. He gives us his spirit filling us so that we can withstand cultural pressure, so that we can withstand the temptation to let internal compromise come up, and he gives us reward at the end when we persevere by his grace, by his spirit to the end. Let's pray together. Father, 
thank you for the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and identified with us by taking our sin and our death. And thank you for the hope of heaven in which we, by nothing good in and of ourselves, but only by his grace, receive the reward that he deserves. Receive his righteousness. Receive his prize. Receive his victory. Lord, I pray that we would have ears attentive to Jesus, the righteous judge. That we would take seriously his call to not compromise. Or that we would remain faithful to him, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of temptation. Lord, may we remain faithful to Christ because of the amazing grace that he has shown us. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.